and welcome to the BPL Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, here with a very special guest today, Judge Jeffrey Sutton. Thank you, Jeff, for being on the podcast. You're welcome. So Judge Jeffrey Sutton serves on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. He's the author of 51 Imperfect Solutions, States and the Making of American Constitutional Law. Judge Sutton will be doing an author talk here at Bexley Public Library in our auditorium on Wednesday, June 27th at 7 p.m. So Jeff, could you tell us a little bit about your career prior to becoming a federal judge? Sure, so um, I live in Bexley, uh, not a bad place to live, and I went to Ohio State's Law School, graduated in 1990, clerked for a judge on the Second Circuit, Judge Thomas Meskel, and then was fortunate enough to clerk on the U.S. Supreme Court for Justice Lewis Powell and Justice Antonin Scalia in 1990 uh, then I went and worked at Jones Day. Jones Day is a very big law firm internationally that was formed in Cleveland and had a very big Columbus office. So I worked there in total for about eight years. And then I had the good fortune uh, between 1995 and 1998 to be the state solicitor for Betty Montgomery, then the attorney general of the state of Ohio. And that job put me in charge of defending um, state laws against challenges by individuals that thought they were unconstitutional under the state or federal constitutions. Okay, so the, the, um, the path that your career has taken with you ending up you know, as a federal judge, is that something you always foresaw or is it sort of a surprise that you've ended up here? Or? Well, most people that have the good fortune of clerking for a judge uh, really enjoy the experience and I would expect that most people that have clerked think that at some point they would really enjoy being a judge. Um, it's, it's, there's a lot of good fortune that goes into it, and I was lucky enough to get uh, appointed for the job. But I, I guess I would say, both in law school and as a law clerk, I thought it would be a really wonderful job to do, and, and I was right. It is a wonderful job. Great, great. So what would you say is the core message of 51 Imperfect Solutions? Right. Well, there's, um, there's a lot of books out there about um, American constitutional law, and most of them focus on the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. constitutions. One idea behind 51 Imperfect Solutions was to remind people that we have 51 constitutions, 50 state constitutions, and one U.S. constitution. So I wanted to tell some stories about equal protection, criminal procedure, uh, due process, free speech, that illustrated the um, the dialogue between the state and federal courts and the state and federal constitutions when it comes to protecting our liberties. The other thing I was trying to do was to supplement the, the normal way in which these stories proceed. Um, unhappily, as a matter of American history, there are many examples of constitutional law stories where the states or various state officials were the villains in the story, and the heroes tended to be the U.S. Supreme Court in protecting this or that right. Uh, the best example of that is our unfortunate uh, Jim Crow era, leading to Brown versus Board of Education. And the book seeks to supplement those stories, not contradict them, but I wanted to sup supplement them with some stories in which the state courts were the heroes, the state courts protected rights, and in some instances where the U.S. Supreme Court opted not to protect the rights. And one message of the book is it's actually quite complicated uh, which set of courts, which constitution does a better job in protecting our rights. In some instances, it's been the 
U.S. Constitution. In other instances, it's been the state constitutions. Okay, I see. So it sounds like maybe your book is illustrating that um, it's more of a gray area than people may perceive. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, it's, it's really more complicated than one might imagine. Uh, most Americans are um, embrace judicially enforceable rights. That's a big part of separation of powers, that the courts provide a check on the executive and legislative branches. But that doesn't tell us whether the state courts or the federal courts should do the protecting. And the point of these stories was to illustrate that there have been times in American history where the state courts and the state constitutions have played a very productive role in rights protection. And my objective is to get people to think a little more seriously about both halves of the equation, the federal courts and the state courts, the federal constitution and the 50 state constitutions. Okay, okay. So relating this to a current issue, so how does your book relate to U.S. Supreme Court decisions like Gill versus Whitford? Yeah, so that was a decision that came out uh, earlier in the week. That's um, a pretty um, famous case about political gerrymandering. And the question presented in Gill and a companion case was whether the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause primarily, but possibly Due Process Clause, possibly First Amendment, prohibited states from engaging in extreme gerrymandering or gerrymandering that was just too overtly political. Ultimately, on Monday of this week, the U.S. Supreme Court did not resolve the merits of either case, and they identified some procedural problems with respect to both of the plaintiffs in the two cases. So for now, anyway, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has yet to identify a constitutional prohibition on extreme political gerrymandering. One message of the book, 51 Imperfect Solutions, would be that okay, uh, it's quite possible that at some point the U.S. Supreme Court will recognize such a right. Uh, But at this point, there is no such protection. And in the interim, nothing prohibits the states from placing limits on political gerrymandering. So, for example, earlier this spring, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court imposed a limit on that state's political gerrymandering, uh, and they did it under their state constitution, not the U.S. Constitution. In Ohio, um, a a ballot initiative was placed in front of the voters, and they imposed their own limits on political gerrymandering in Ohio. And it's not obvious that 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 may or may not have resolved all the problems, but the point is that each state can provide its own source of independent liberty rights protections. Another way of thinking about it is that when the framers put together the U.S. Constitution, they borrowed all of the individual rights guarantees they placed in the Bill of Rights from the state constitutions. Remember that the first constitutions in this country were put together from 1776 to before the summer of 1787 when the U.S. Constitution was first written. And when the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791, they were using rights that had been identified and um, ratified in the states first. So we now have a system where if one is unhappy with a state or local law, you can resort to the state courts and the state constitutions first. They're, you might say, the first bulwark in rights protection. And the backstop is the U.S. Constitution and the U.S. Supreme Court. And 
that's really what American federalism is all about. You have two sources of power and two constraints on those sources of power. And that's why the political gerrymandering story will continue at the federal level, but in the interim, nothing prohibits individuals from going to state legislatures, state initiatives, or state courts to try to impose limits on political gerrymandering. Okay, so I think what I'm hearing is that it serves one well to remember that there is this balance between the state and federal legislation and that the states do have this power. And so on an individual level, voting and being active in in local and state elections can really matter in the long run. And it's not necessarily just about federal rulings. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, American federalism, another way of thinking about it is that um, we have a notion of laboratories of experimentation, and we think of the states as those laboratories. And that was an idea uh, promoted uh, by Justice Brandeis, and I'm quoting him when I say laboratories of experimentation. And so the idea was you have a new policy problem, and nothing prohibits this or that state from choosing a brave new course in terms of addressing that problem or balancing the interests of the individual versus the state. And states can do that through their legislature, but nothing prohibits state courts from being laboratories of interpretation with respect to constitutional rights. They're allowed to do their their own innovations. Uh, An Ohio Supreme Court decision might try something new. The Michigan Supreme Court the next year might disagree and try something still different. And over time, we have a marketplace of ideas when it comes to interpreting our constitutional guarantees. Sometimes that marketplace of ideas leads to one winner, and we nationalize the right through the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Constitution. At other times, we realize, and this is a point of the title of the book, that we're working with very general guarantees, free speech, unreasonable search and seizure, equal protection, due process, Quite often, it's very difficult to say there is one perfect answer to how to interpret those guarantees with respect to a modern policy issue. And in those situations, why would we insist on one imperfect national solution rather than 50 or even 51 imperfect solutions? Uh, When you're dealing with imperfection, which is what I think we're dealing with when it comes to many of these guarantees, it's much better to allow quite a few different courts to experiment than it is to too quickly engage in winner-take-all approaches to the issue going directly to the U.S. Supreme Court and saying there's only one and one way, just one way, to think about the issue. So, um, yeah, I think we Americans are very comfortable with the idea that different states can try different things through their legislature Um, as a way of dealing with new policy problems. All I'm trying to say in the book is we should think the same way about state courts. The history of each state constitution is unique. Um, The people of each state have their own history, culture, and rights that they care deeply about and others they care less deeply about. And my message is the state courts should be quite comfortable respecting and honoring those rights within a given state. Uh, they don't have to respect rights that another state holds dear. Um, and that's, that could be very helpful for the federal courts. And as a federal judge, you know, I, I'm in a, I've got a ringside seat on this debate, and I think it would be very helpful to federal judges to have state court judges 
taking seriously their independent duty to construe their own constitutions and decide when and when not to protect certain rights. I see. That's, it's very illuminating. For those that are unable to attend your author talk here at the library, is there anything in particular you wanted to touch on that they, they might miss out on? Yeah, so the four, four of the um, core chapters slash stories in the book are about um, really significant debates in American constitutional law. One is about school funding, uh, which we Ohioans know quite a bit about since there's been quite a bit of state court litigation about school funding, starting with the DeRolf case. And so that story talks about how the federal um, constitution did not protect the right to have equal funding between rich and poor school districts. But even so, many state courts, including the Ohio Supreme Court, protected that right. And it's really a fascinating story because you really see that the state legislatures and the state courts are the leaders when it comes to try to improve slash address uh, this policy problem. Another case is about uh, criminal procedure and unreasonable searches and seizures and how we treat suspects of crime and the ways in which the state courts have done a very good job uh, protecting these rights and the times in which the U.S. Supreme Court has done a good job and perhaps other times could do a better job. Uh, a third chapter is about uh, the eugenics movement, um, um, an unfortunate chapter in American history when quite a few states passed laws permitting uh, states to involuntarily sterilize men and women convicted of crimes or who had mental disabilities. And that's really a story in which the state courts are the heroes and the U.S. Supreme Court, um, I think the verdict is, of history has shown, got it wrong. Um, and the last story is about um, a great debate in American history during World War II um, about Jehovah's Witnesses who were unwilling to salute the flag at the beginning of each school day in the public schools on the ground that it was inconsistent with their religion. And initially, the federal courts did not protect the Jehovah's Witnesses from uh, mandatory um, flag salute requirements. And uh, the state courts eventually did protect the right, and then eventually the US Supreme Court reversed course and protected the right as well. Um, the other thing I would say um, about the book is it's, 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 it's also, even though it's a book about state courts and state constitutions, it's, it's very much about what the right balance is between state courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, we live in a time where Americans believe deeply in judicially enforceable rights. I don't think that will change anytime soon, but we do disagree fiercely about which rights to protect. And we're seeing that every June as the U.S. Supreme Court issues its uh, substantial decisions. Um, June can be a very good month for some people and a very bad month for others. And um, there's not much I can do about that as an, a lower um, federal court judge. Uh, the one thing I can say is that that's not the only place to go to protect rights. And um, perhaps one thing we can all be thinking about a little more as Americans is thinking about state legislatures and state courts as another vehicle for protecting uh, liberty rights. I see, I see. So shifting gears a bit, have you read anything good lately? Uh, so I, I just, uh, I would highly recommend, uh, in addition to 51 Imperfect Solutions, uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Grant, which I, I really enjoyed. Uh, Grant has been underappreciated in American history, uh, underappreciated as a general, and I think underappreciated even more as a president. Uh, perhaps the thing I found most fascinating about the book is it really 
illustrated what a catastrophe Reconstruction was, and uh, and that was despite Grant's efforts. Grant was on the right side in those debates, but I think eventually lost. Um, and uh, and that's Reconstruction is not taught as well as it could be, I think, in high school history and college history. And the, the book is really a great way of understanding what happened then and how we are still living with its effects today. Do you foresee um, Grant getting maybe a, a splashy musical and, <laughs> and rising to popularity? <laughs> oh, I'm, like sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure Ron Chernow <laughs> hopes. Uh, and he's uh, passed his precedent. It probably will since he wrote the Hamilton right. <laughs> uh, biography. Um, I don't know. I, I, if someone had asked me about turning the Hamilton biography into a Broadway musical, I would have said, wow, you're very imaginative. <laughs> right. And of course, he was very imaginative. So if you could do that, I don't see why you couldn't do this. And, you know, Grant's an interesting figure. It might not be quite as interesting as the founding generation, but uh, let's face it, uh, the 1860s and 70s and 80s are a really important time in American history. So I suspect someone will try. I, I, have, not, not? I have not been asked. <laughs> <laughs> Me either, yeah. <laughs> well, we're running a bit short of time here today. Um, I want to thank Judge Jeffrey Sutton again for being on the podcast. That uh, was a great talk. And just a reminder, Judge Sutton will be doing an author talk here at Bexley Public Library in our auditorium, Wednesday, June 27th at 7 p.m. And even if you can't make the talk, be sure to check out his new book, 51 Imperfect Solutions, States and the Making of American Constitutional Law. So thanks again, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it. Me too. That's all the time we have for the BPL podcast. Have a good one. <laughs>